Hey, I'm Will Leviste. He's Eric Claville. You're tuning into Leviste and Claville. And we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. Today's show, part two, justice for George Floyd. Uh, this week, again, in the second week of the trial, has been more emotional, riveting testimony, powerful testimony for witnesses, also law enforcement and medical uh, experts. Um, one of the uh, training officers, Johnny Marcel, I believe his name is, actually testified that um, George Floyd continuing to have his knee on the neck, uh, um, rather uh, Derek Chauvin, I'm sorry, continuing to have his knee on the neck of George Floyd was absolutely unauthorized. Um, Eric, you know, as attorney, man, I mean, what do you think uh, of how the prosecution, the direction that they go in the case that they're building so far? What's, what's your thoughts? Well, well, uh, again, uh, this is definitely, I believe, and you and I spoke about this. This is the trial of not just a decade, but really this century as we look mm -hmm. at policing in Black America. You know, from I, from an attorney's perspective, I think that the prosecution is doing a phenomenal job ensuring that they bring individuals who are uh, experienced, that know the process, that know the policies and the like. You know, they brought the police chiefs, they brought the training officers, they brought individuals who know the policy, responsible for training and the like. And all of them have agreed that in no way was the actions by former officer who's on trial for murder, Derek right. Chauvin, uh, were in line with policy, even when you're given that leeway, right? Because look, let's keep in mind, being a police officer, more than likely you're coming nine times out of 10 into a situation that is adrenaline, high adrenaline running. It's a situation that's chaotic. It's a situation where you got two people or multiple people don't agree, right? So, right, we're, right. so we're still acknowledging that is. You don't call the police just to say, hey, have a coffee and a donut with me. I just wanted to say hello. Yeah, I mean, because their training is about coming into situations like that and being able to de-escalate. De so they're not Absolutely. like a regular citizen like you or I coming into a situation, high stress, don't have the training of being able to come into the situation and resolve it and cool it down. That That's what we expect and we call them and they're trained to do it. And all of the testimony so far is saying that, uh, Derek Chauvin failed miserably. Absolutely, all of that. Absolutely, and also keep in mind, as a former as a former soldier myself, mm -hmm. you know, even in war, we were trained that when you go in, there are certain things that you cannot do. Right. So you even have to deescalate in an in a situation of wartime where you have bombs, you have bullets, you have persons dying all around you, and you're you're attacking the enemy, but still. There are certain things that you can and cannot do. So in this situation, you know, they showed where, and we didn't even see this part on the camera, but right. they even showed where he was using a pain technique where it's a pain submission. So not only was his knee, knee in the neck of George Floyd cutting off his airflow, you also had the officer, former officer Derek Chauvin, twisting or putting his finger into his palm causing pain and tightening the handcuffs for so, so so essentially he was he was torturing him at Absolutely. this point i mean again police supposed to come into a situation they're supposed to gain control of the situation and like some of the testimony that came forth was once the situation is controlled once a person is cuffed 
then it's the job of the police officer to de-escalate and actually treat the suspect as if the person is in your care. Again, this is totally, this is not the same as a typical citizen. You think I got somebody under control and I'm just trying to keep them under control. I'm not worried about the fact that they are in my care, but as a police officer, you're arrested, you're in the care of the police officer. So when you say he was actually applying pain to this man who was cuffed and can't resist at this manner and is more than one officer, he was now in the mode of he's inflicting uh, torture. He's like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I mean, and this goes to the core of how in the black community and black and brown communities, how we often feel that we are being policed. It's not that we're being treated as if we're in the care of officers and that a situation is being de-escalated. But there's this extra element of I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to be judge and jury here on the street. I'm going to I'm going to teach you a lesson. Right? I mean, it goes to the core of the case. Absolutely. And, and Will, you're exactly right, because now, you know, you are now have the responsibility, meaning the officer, in order to not just de-escalate, but treat that person as with respect and with care so that you don't harm them any further right. or cause them to harm anyone. And everyone saw. I mean, your eyes are your your eyes can't lie to you, Will. You know, George Floyd was no threat to anybody. As a matter of fact, he was pleading to please let him up. He was begging that he was dying. He was begging for his mother. He was saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You know, at this point, and also in the body cam, you saw the other officers that were on him initially. Mm. Even they even got up and then went to Derek Chauvin and said, maybe we should let him up. And he said, no, we're going to keep him here in this position. Now, keep in mind, when you're looking at Derek Chauvin, and I, I, I go back and I look at his face, I look at his face, how cavalier he was, mm-hmm. how uh, he was kind of thumbing his nose up at everyone else. Now, if George Floyd was such a big threat, then why is your hand in your pocket and the other is on your thigh? You know, right. I mean, it goes to, again, hand in pocket, putting even more pressure, more weight because he's not bracing himself with his hands on the ground, on hands of the car. So it speaks to it kind of shows this this extra. I'm going to teach you a lesson. How dare you um, resist me? How dare you not submit to me? How dare you question my authority over you? And. These are the things I think people have to realize and understand. And I think that this whole case is really bringing to the fore that policing in the black community, black and brown communities is not often felt that it's about protecting and serving and care. It's about teaching a lesson. It's about maintaining control. It's about keeping you down. And in this case, we see Chauvin literally keeping George Floyd down to the point of sucking the life out of him. And one of the things that came out in the testimony is that Chauvin was regularly trained on doing CPR, regularly trained. Again, from an officer's perspective, once the situation is under control, now you are supposed to be administering care, not administering a lesson, not administering, you know, I'm going to teach you you know, how to submit, but you're supposed to be administering care at this point because your goal is you arrested the person because you think that they can, 
they're they're uh, allegedly committed a crime. So your job is to build a case against them to properly administer them and have them ha receive justice or due process for the crime. So it's just interesting the way that this is playing out and you're seeing this this extra this extra angle here of yeah. dehumanizing people, which is at the core of what black and brown people have been complaining about when it comes to policing in the communities, you know, for generations. Absolutely. And then even outside of this trial, you know, we, we talked about initially how this particular trial has sparked a reckoning with uh, social justice and more specifically as it relates to the treatment of black people by the white establishment mm -hmm. and, the, and what we call systematic racism. Uh, and we've seen this happen for the last 10 months, almost 12 months now, across the world, not just the United States. But also what I saw, and we all saw it, was that white America finally said, oh my God, this is exactly what they've been talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, so when people say that, I, I didn't know that I had white privilege or I didn't know that blacks were being treated this way. I think that sometimes persons can hide their head in the sand and not see what they really don't want to see or, or have to see and try to deny it. What George Floyd did, you know, his life wasn't in vain. It basically showed the world exactly what black people have been going through. So the knee on the neck of George Floyd was not just the knee that took his life. It was also symbolism of the knee on the necks of black peoples across the country and the world struggling, trying to get ahead, being mistaken uh, for, quote unquote, an individual who's causing trouble and actually is, is, is really a law-abiding citizen, a person who's falsely accused, a person who is being discriminated against, a person where prejudice is now hampering them being able to move forward, a person who's Black who's trying to break strides into a traditional white structure but being right. pushed back right. all the time. So that's what I believe this trial has shown us and what George Floyd has shown us. And we'll, you know, George Floyd is, you know, with, within our age group, right? I mean, he's four, he was 46. Right, so, right. So we all have lived what he's lived, what he lived. Right, and that's the, but that's the but. That's the but. We talked about this but, but Rodney King, okay? But Eric Garner. I mean, I share your optimism and your hope that this case is really- It is hope. This it is hope. But Rodney King, but Eric Gardner. I mean, again, with the Rodney King case, we talked about it in the last show. We saw the video. We thought, okay, this is it. But Eric Gardner in New York, we saw the video of the officers having him in a stranglehold and holding him, in, holding him down. And we thought, okay, this is it. Clearly, this is this is above, this is over the line. Or clearly, people are going to realize now. And again, here we are. We see the video. Mr. Floyd, George Floyd, life sucked out of him. And we got to remember it's still, but these other cases also came before us and there wasn't the justice. It wasn't the level of justice. And so this is one of the things that is, is just really concerning for me. Again, as a, you talked about your experience in the military and my experience as a reporter covering police and then also being in an area, Hampton Roads, where you're at, strong military area and talking to mili many military families. It's the police families and military that are among the first people will tell you about the responsibility 
of handling people in situations like that. Right. And like this, they are the ones who know and they are the ones who oftentimes are most disturbed when they see things like this because of how it strikes to the heart of their training. It strikes to the heart of why they even got into the profession to protect and serve in the first place. So I think that one of the things that concerns me about this is how a lot of people have become totally anti-police over this. And specifically, when you look at a lot of the black police officers, men and women who are out there who got into the force to make it change. And again, I can tell you as a reporter dealing with cops of many different backgrounds, the majority of police officers out there truly believe in protecting and serving. And the majority of them that are in black and brown communities believe in in, in protecting and, and serving with respect. But a lot of times it's the culture and it's the, the incentives that they have in place for arresting and policing and doing it in this style that leads to situations like these yeah. where it's the bad apples, the men, and there are many bad apples in these police forces where the bad apples feel, feel empowered and emboldened to engage in this kind of behavior. And I think that another piece is happening as you see experts in law enforcement coming forward and saying, no, 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 no. This is not appropriate behavior. I think that that's one of the key things that's coming out of this trial as well. You know, the blue wall uh, coming down somewhat, so to speak. Yeah, and and I think that's, that's a really good point, Will, because I've never seen the blue wall shaken or come down. Now, maybe it's opened the door to allow one bad apple out and it'll close back again. The ranks will be closed. Uh, Maybe we'll see that. But for this specific case, uh, the blue wall itself has come down. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that's a good thing because it shows that accountability. And that's one issue that we've had uh, with policing, whether, you know, there's whether you're African-American, you know, whether you're Hispanic, black or brown or you're, you're a white citizen that's been done wrong. You know, you police are seen to be above the law, you know, hands mm-hmm. down, that uh, the internal investigations has been seen to be in cahoots with uh, policing and so forth. We've seen right. many, many cases, especially in New York, doing the stop and frisk uh, cases uh, during, the, during that particular time in the early and mid-2000s, where individuals who were a part of that and that were high ranking, the captains, the commanders, and so forth. Those individuals were not disciplined. They were actually promoted. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so we've seen the lack of accountability. So I think this is really good for persons' trust in police and people's trust in the policing system. So I think this is a good thing. But I also want to point out how this is also a good thing to not how we used to demonize individuals who were struggling with drug use. Mm. Uh, And one thing that this case has shown, and this is one of the defenses uh, for uh, former officer Derek Chauvin. Of course. Of course. It wasn't my knee on his neck for not. Attack the victim. Of course. Right. It was his drug use that actually killed him. I mean, I didn't have to be there in nine and a half minutes. Even if I wasn't there, he's going to die anyway, right? Right. If he wasn't on drugs, all of this never would have happened. You know, never would have happened. You know, I never would have had to put my knee on his neck. You know, but what this trial is doing is showing that these are people who are in a life life struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, with their addictions, there are people who are who are operating every day. 
I mean, if, if you looked at his girlfriend uh, or fiance who was on the stand, you would have no idea that she was an right. uh, active drug user, you know, right. and struggling with that life. Because again, yeah, a lot of people are functional. Yeah, like you said, a lot absolutely. of people are functional or they don't fit the box that we typically put, you know, a drug user under what drug you see addict. in the media, a drug user, drug addict in it. People don't always fit in these neat boxes. And there's a lot of people, our neighbors, uh, our family members, obviously, our co-workers who are struggling seriously with drugs and can easily find themselves in this kind of situation. You know, whether it be, you know, what we call over-the-counter drugs or mm-hmm. whether it be prescription drugs, uh, we also saw this play out in majority white society with the prescription opioid abuse. Right. So now I think there's more sympathy for people who are struggling every day uh, for, you know, with this addiction. And, you know, hopefully there'll be more policy that comes down, more help for people, more PSAs for individuals not to find alternatives to deal with their hurt, with their pain, with their struggles, with their depression, with their mental health, so they won't have to get on these, these drugs. But nevertheless, I think that it was a good thing that we do show this, you know, in trial, you know, and, you know, Unfortunately, the defense is going to try to spin it. They're going to try to spin it and say that it was his drug use. But I think that what this trial has done is given humanity and not humiliation to people who are struggling and addicting. And will, you know, some win, some do not. But ultimately, they need support as well. And Look, go ahead. Go ahead, finish I, your thing. No, I, I, I was just going to say. Uh, we they do need support, but we have to ensure that this just isn't a fleeting moment, but rather that this becomes a standard where we humanize people and not humiliate them in everyday life. Well, you know, that's that's the challenge that I have, the, the optimistic, cautious, optimistic hope is that we've we've still had cases like these before where we thought that there would be more empathy, there would be more understanding, you know, there would actually be change because you're right. Police officers are not equipped and often trained to deal with these kinds of issues, these kinds of drug related issues or social issues. And so they come upon situations like this, not trained for it and throw everybody into the same box everybody into the same group. And again, especially when it comes to black and brown communities, it becomes so easy to just dehumanize. You're already indoctrinated into not believing that these folks are human beings worthy of respect, worthy of of mutuality, of human, you know, human dignity. So it becomes real easy. And then again, think and understand that police officers are emboldened legally are the only people who have the ability to just take away your freedom. The president of the United States can't even take away your freedom. The That's least right. police officer by law, because of we are a nation of laws and having to get a situation under control, has the right to take away your freedom. And so when we give people these types of authority, we've got to make sure that they are trained, that they are equipped, that they had the right mindset to be able to treat all citizens with respect. So you look at, for example, mm-hmm. Eric Garner, the parallel between Eric Garner's case in Staten Island, New York, and George Floyd. What were they initially being stopped 
about. Eric Garner is being stopped about selling loose cigarettes, loose cigarettes maybe ille allegedly illegally selling loose cigarettes. Eric Garner is being stopped about allegedly uh, passing on an illegal, a counterfeit $20 bill. Oh, George Floyd, George Floyd. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, thanks, George Floyd. Please, so for these alleged crimes, these men need to lose their lives? I mean, what what are we talking about? And police are getting overly involved in these types of crimes as if police don't have better things to be more concerned about. So it makes you wonder, I mean, where is this coming from? What is this mindset that's going on that a police officer, that a situation is about a counterfeit bill or selling loose cigarettes ends up in the death of a human being? Under the under the care of police officers that are supposed to be trained Absolutely. to de-escalate situations, so it just kind of speaks to this this lack of being uh, you know equipped with how to manage and how to be able to deal with these types of situations. And um, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say it also deals with the perception of black men, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, keep in mind in the trial it also showed where. Uh, former officer Chauvin interaction with an elderly black man on on the sidewalk that said, mm. "You kill that man," and he said, "Oh, he he was probably on something. Mm. I had to handle it, you know." And this is something where you you see where also in Eric Garner case you have six officers that are surrounding this this quote unquote black man. Yeah, we he, we had to handle him. He was you know we had to handle him. You know, you see someone, you know, an officer sneaking from behind and put him in a chokehold and, and they take him down and his hands are up the whole time saying, I can't breathe. 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 Now, you got to ask yourself, both George Floyd and Eric Garner uttered the same words before they died. I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. What was it about George Floyd that we saw that we did not see with Eric Garner? You know, I... I I, I, I pondered that thought, you know, and I, 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 in my memory, I look at those two images. But at the same time, we have to look at the time period in which that took place. The time period in which this took place, uh, Eric Garner, I believe President Obama was president. Maybe there was a backlash for African-American upward mobility and reaching points of success. Of course, we also had the Trayvon Martin uh, case that happened during that time period, Michael Brown. And maybe we had a situation where it was more about tapering down racial unrest mm -hmm. as opposed to really dealing with it the way that it should. During this time period, we had four years of Donald Trump that was chaotic. I mean, anything, keep in mind, anything during that time period went. If it could go, it did. So I think America was more in more apt to protest more apt to speak out against injustices because we saw injustices every single day from the highs office in the land, from white actors, from the United Right here in Charlottesville to all to kidnap, attempted kidnapping of elected officials uh, by individuals in various states, Michigan, they wanted to do kidnapping in Virginia and other places. I think that the time period will said, you know what? We can't take any more of this. And I think that was the the I think that was the galvanizing effect 
which helped to bring this issue to the forefront. So I guess it goes to timing is everything. Well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I see what you're saying about the time period, but I also think that, again, these instances keep coming up in each decade. I mean, I remember Amadou Diallo. I believe that was oh, in the yeah. 80s it or was. 90s with, yeah. in New York. I, when You know, I was in New York and he's being, you know, sodomized right. by police officers. I mean, and it was it was a major case and it was a major uproar. It was a major level of protest. You know, Al Sharpton and other uh, activists were very deeply involved in getting, you know, justice for that family. So I just think that this is just a systemic problem issue in America. And that I think that the issue of timing, you're, you're correct, has been important here because the kind of eruption that happened over the summer with blacks and whites and brown people and people of all, all backgrounds and then spreading across the globe has raised this consciousness of this issue of dehumanizing black people, period, is a worldwide global problem. And I think that, so to that extent of, I think timing is very important, but I think that we've got to remember that these incidences, these these tragedies have continued to happen decade after decade, you know, after decade. And there has to be something done about the culture of policing, because I think that that is much of where these particular conf confrontations that happen with police are coming from. The culture, and we've talked about this on previous shows of how even policing began, you know, from, you know, the, the slave, um, uh, the, the slave patrols, yep. you know, coming up through the current generation, coming through the, you know, L.A., and the recruitment of whites from the South to come to LA to, to keep these black and brown communities in place. And then that kind of that kind of policing method being nationalized, uh, as well as you can pick other, other major centers, New York, Chicago, where that yeah. kind of policing is part, has been part of the history of these cities from the very beginning. And I think that this type of behavior in our culture as we're becoming more of a multicultural in terms of uh, percentages of black and brown people. And it's not gonna serve our culture and our country well going forward anymore. We can't continue to thrive as a nation if only certain people in this country, you know, who are not white, we continue to have these caste systems where, you know, only white lives matter and are highly valued. Black lives don't matter. Indigenous people lives don't matter. You know, we can't continue to thrive as a nation with these with this caste system that does not serve us well. And and my hope is that it's through these kinds of trials, these kinds of um, situations, that the change will come that will help us lead towards being a better nation. Absolutely. And Will, I mean, I, I love your optimism. I think it's going to be a struggle with that. <laughs> but you love my optimism now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I still see that as being a standard that's going to be fought against uh, because, mm -hmm. you you know, when you live with a certain standard for almost a millennial, millennial, we're not talking about a few weeks, a few days, a few months, a few years. We're talking about almost a thousand years. This has been the standard. So it's not going to go away overnight. You're not going to pass a piece of public policy and it happens. Mm -hmm. But I think it begins with education. Uh, you mentioned natives people. 
you know, what what European colonialism did to the world. And I, I, I started to look at this and I haven't seen any research written on it, but I think it should be how European colonialism really changed the world. Keep in mind, European colonialism touched every single country except mainland China. It, it basically ravaged, destroyed native peoples, uh, European nations uh, took over uh, countries, lands, and still to this day, when we talk about the passing of Prince uh, Philip, uh, the queen, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, you know, his lands and inheritance goes back to 1399 from because he was uh, he was in line to be Prince of Greece and also Denmark because of his father. So royalty married royalty, but their lands went all the way back, you know, almost 800 years. So somebody's going to get that. But how yeah. did it happen? Right. So, you know, I, I believe that this is something that's going to happen. It starts with education. Uh, and you mentioned, probably, you, you forgot to mention one of the most important figures in modern day policing. And that's August Vollmer from New Orleans, born in 1876. Uh, first police chief of Berkeley, California, died in 1955 in Berkeley, California. He actually wrote the book on modern policing and really helped to create the field of criminal justice. And in that will, he stated, uh, he found in his different tests that you could, uh, against people who were poor, people who were not white, people who were immigrants, and people who didn't have access, you can go harder on them in interrogation and pretty much uh, skate the rules a bit to get the job accomplished. But you couldn't do that with individuals who were white in society and also had access and basically had resources. So even in this particular creation of criminal justice and policing uh, in our academies, which was taught for years, August Vollmer is a figure in criminal justice, that's where, you know, we start that when we create these police departments. But it begins so with education. So, so when you think about what we need to do, we need to connect the dots between, you know, the racism, the policies, and then how it plays out in very specific cases. Absolutely. Like what we've seen happen with George Floyd, that they're not things that are just divorced from each other right. or it's something that just happened so many years ago it's not relevant now, but it's all part of systemic racism and how Absolutely. we've gotten to where we are now. So as you wrap up, take us home. Take us home, Eric. Yeah. So again, we're covering this justice for George Floyd. Uh, we're going to continue talking about this issue as the trial continues. So we'll be back again in the next segment talking about this issue and following every bit of it. Thank you again for listening to LaVisa and Claville. Follow us on our social media like and share on Facebook, of course, our YouTube channel. And to us, that's the way it is. We'll see you next time.